Hello, everybody, and welcome to Parks Podcast. My name is Austin Parkinson, and before we get to our special guest this week, I want to share something I had a chance to watch that had a tremendous impact on me the other night. It was about 3 a.m. I was having a tough time falling back to sleep, and I went to our recordings and clicked on the Alabama Crimson Tide Rolling with the Tide feature on ESPN, specifically uh, a lot of Nick Saban behind-the-scenes segments that were extremely intriguing. There's a lot of us coaches right now that are preparing for the season and getting organized as practice quickly approaches and couldn't have had better preparation than watching those episodes. And if anybody gets a chance, I I highly encourage it. There were a couple things that stood out to me uh, throughout the course of the two episodes. But the first, uh, Nick Saban was addressing his team in the initial team meeting. And they were coming off of a national championship. And his first thoughts to the team were to to really explain to them uh, what the process is all about. He talks about the process a lot doing what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it the way you're supposed to do it, playing for as hard as you can for as long as you can as consistent as you possibly can. But he goes in a little bit deeper and he talks about in order to, to you know, focus on the process, you got to be mentally tough. And he feels like his teams have got to be mentally tough, especially the way the bar is being raised in their program. But the way he defined it, I thought was interesting. He talked about mental toughness as being your breaking point. What's your breaking point? When is it do you start to get lazy? When is it you start to lose focus? When is it during practice, the outside circumstances start to impact your ability to do whatever task is required of you as a player? And his, you know, he made the comment, you know, their goal isn't to try to break the players, but the nature of football, the nature of the game that they play puts you in that position. And as players, being able to push past that, push, push through that is ultimately where you find out kind of what level of toughness you have. But in order to have that mental toughness, you got to have discipline. And he talked about discipline this way. He said, discipline is knowing something that you should do, but you don't want to do but you make yourself do it. Or it's knowing something that you shouldn't do, that you want to do, but you find a way to avoid it. And I thought that was really uh, a good way of defining it and being consistent every single day uh, in the discipline. And obviously their teams do that. The second thing that was intriguing to me was his head coaches meeting. They gave us a behind the scenes look at that. He had all his coaches lined up in the room. There probably seemed like 30, 40 coaches. And as he was speaking, they panned to the floor on one of the coaches and his leg was tapping nervously on the ground. Just that nervous energy with with Saban at the head of the table. But as Saban addressed his coaches, he was very calm. He was very collected. But he said to him, he said, listen, he wasn't happy about the fact that in the previous day they hadn't walked through a certain exercise that they were going to teach um, amongst the team. So whether that be karaoke or, or whatever the exercise was, he was very calm and he looked at his coaches and he said, listen, every single time that we're doing something in our practices, something that we're teaching, something we're emphasizing, it has to be thoroughly gone over in the meeting. It then needs to be walked through. Then they will do it in the group setting. Then they do it in the team setting. And finally, they'll do it live against each other. Meeting, walkthrough, group, team, live. And he reemphasized to his coaches that pictures say a lot more than words. And I thought that was interesting, the process, again, for how they taught their players. He said there were five opportunities for them to learn that skill. So not that they could learn how to do it right, but how they could do it where they weren't able to get it wrong. And I thought that was uh, something that I'll definitely take with us. And I've already passed it along to, to my team. 
The third thing that was really cool was Kobe Bryant showed up. And if you're the Alabama football team, not many things impress you from the standpoint you've won multiple national championships. But when Kobe Bryant walked in that room, the players erupted and the enthusiasm on their faces was was evident. Kobe started out his discussion reminding them as they prepare for the season, something he used to do was edit his life each preseason. He looked at his goals. He looked at what he wanted to accomplish. And then he had to edit those things that were either needed to be taken out of his life or the people that he needed to bring into his life to surround him and give him the encouragement, the positive energy that he needed to be successful. But oftentimes he edited those people out or those items or things that would get in the way of him being successful. You also hear about the Mamba mentality. He talked about when he lined up on the court every single game, he looked across at his opponent and he wanted them to reconsider why they played the game of basketball. And I had to chuckle at that because if that doesn't describe the Mamba mentality, I'm not sure what does. The last thing Kobe talks about is he has a sit down with Nick Saban. They talk a lot of different subjects and they cover a lot of different areas. It's really, really good stuff. But the one thing that Kobe talked about was his first couple of years with the Lakers. You know, he came off the bench and he had people in the ears telling people in his ear telling him, you should be playing. You should be getting more shots. And he said he had to trust his coaches and, and block out all that noise and to say, Hey, I'm not good enough. I need to get better coach. What do you need me to do? And uh, I think back to a story later to in today's podcast that Conzo Martin will share uh, in regards to coach Katie and, and him going back to coach and saying, what do I need to do? And Kobe says too often that, that parents, family, friends uh, are giving these, you know, their input and that the players need to find that ability to block that out and concentrate on the task at hand. And I think any Anything that Kobe has to say uh, is definitely worth listening to. The last thing was just a general observation. And it's just the details of the Alabama program. Um, one of the, the scenes that was pretty neat, they show the players getting ready to enter the weight room. Now, if you watch a, a college football game, one of the big pageantries is when the home team enters the field and everybody lines up and there's, you know, they're in a big group and they kind of hold each other back. And then eventually somebody you know, leads them out in the field and they go flying out there and the crowd erupts. In their weight room, they did the same thing. They had all the players backed up and, and getting them excited. And then their strength coach, boom, blows the whistle and they come flying in. And, you know, the, the thing about the episode that stood out to me is every single detail is accounted for. Every person in the organization thoroughly understands what they need to do. And Nick Saban has that thing running like a well-oiled machine. There was something I was listening to on the radio today talking about Mike Lombardi. And he mentioned the fact that in the NFL today, a lot of the jobs are outsourced, meaning the head coach just hires a coordinator and he's expected to you know, do great things. But what happens when that coordinator moves on? Does the program continue or are you starting from scratch again? And that so few of the head coaches in the NFL now have that um, reach uh, across the entire uh, organization. And when you watch Alabama, I think you see that on the flip side, I've been turning over to HBO and watching hard knocks. One of my favorite things every year. And I think when you look at those two things without getting into too much detail, I think you can see for yourself why one organization is successful and why one's not. Um, you watch Hugh Jackson and, and the 
Cincinnati Bengals. And I, I just think that it's really clear on why they've had the struggles the last couple years that they've had. There's a lot of question marks there and a lot of uh, un, unanswered questions versus clearly defined parameters when you look at the Alabama football program. So if you get a chance, I highly encourage you to watch that. Uh, I can't wait for the next episode and uh, love, 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 love watching and hearing uh, Nick Saban speak in those episodes. As we get to our guest this week, it really is an honor for me to be able to interview somebody who I consider not just a friend, but my mentor, Conzo uh, Martin. I played for him in college. His first year coaching was my first year playing. And I can tell you, he is one of the best motivators in college basketball. He's one of the best people in college basketball. And I think he's one of the best coaches in college basketball. He gets his guys to play so hard, but he always has their back and he always has their best interest at heart uh, when he's coaching his players. And I think, you know, as I got into coaching, I was shocked that when I went to Purdue, Coach Katie cared about developing us as young men. And as I got into the profession, I quickly found out that wasn't the case. It was mostly about wins and losses. And although I know Conzo wants to win and will win, he puts a great deal of emphasis on the character of his players and helping them develop uh, as young men. So I know you'll enjoy the podcast this week. It's probably one of my favorite and a lot of nuggets. Get your get your uh, pens out and highlighters out. Make sure you're writing stuff down because it's good info. So when we come back, we'll be joined by the head coach of the Missouri. Tigers, my good friend Conzo Martin. My guest this week on the podcast is truly a special one. One of the guys I, I look up to, uh, both in coaching uh, and off the floor, and, and how he handles himself in life. Former Purdue star, one of the best to ever play at Purdue, went on to have a brief NBA career, played overseas, and then has now been a head coach uh, at four different universities. At each university, has gone on to win big and turn those programs around. He was at Missouri State. He was at Tennessee, he was at Cal, and he's now back in his home state, the head coach of the Missouri Tigers, Conzo Martin. Zoe, thanks for joining us. What's up to Pete? Thank you for having me. Well, I saw recently, I read in an article, you had an opportunity to run a clinic at the Jackie Joyner Center in East St. Louis. And, and it got me thinking, you know, from some of the stuff you told me over the years, you know, you, you, you grew up in East St. Louis. Uh, it was a tough time. It was a rough area. What that must be like to come back now and be in a position you're in as head coach and the platform you have, it's almost like it's come full circle where you're able to give back um, to, to be in a position where you were at when, when you were young. What was it like growing up in East St. Louis and what's it like now to be able to kind of give back in that manner? Well, first, it's a tremendous opportunity to be able to give back within itself and, and to be a part of the University of Mizzou to do that uh, because you're impacting young lives. And, and I know from the lens as a youth, uh, not having those opportunities to go to basketball camps financially. Uh, so we just felt as a staff the best way to be involved, involved with the community. You do it through basketball and you have free camps and clinics so and I thought it was a great gesture uh, to do and our staff did a tremendous job we went to you know the Kansas City area uh, St. Louis and on the Illinois side as well uh, and to be a part of Jackie John Kersey Center a person that I looked up to growing up in East St. Louis uh, I saw 
saw in the Seoul Olympics, uh, it, you know, we shut down the whole school just to watch an Olympics and celebrate her and everything she she did and, and she continues to do for the city. So for me, just to do that uh, and to see the smile on her face and, and to impact these young young men and women, it was a great thing to be a part of. Well, I want to go through your career and talk about some of the the areas that you know people may not know about. You went to to Lincoln High School in East St. Louis, as I talked about, not not the easiest area at the time. And you guys went on and had, I'd say, probably one of the more legendary high school teams in that area. You and Lafonso Ellis and some some other guys that I think went to two state championships. Talk about your time there and what it was like, uh, you know, playing for uh, uh, you know your city and, and being able to accomplish what you guys did. Well, it was great because, you know, growing up in East St. Louis, and not that we had a lot of TV channels when I was a younger guy, but growing up in East St. Louis, the East St. Louis Lincoln Tigers, that was my NBA, so to speak. So when I got in the seventh and eighth grade, I mean, I wanted to be a part of that basketball team. They, they won state championships. and. My high school coach, Benny Lewis, is a, a legend in the state of Illinois. And, and the great thing about that, they were all guys, you know, from the neighborhood that grew up together. And to be a part of that, to play alongside Lafonso Ellis, uh, Vincent Jackson, Chris McKinney, so many guys. And and just not only that, when I look at it now, the experience, you won three state championships in a row. My senior year, we got third place. and But I look back on all the things that our high school coaches did for us to be successful in life. I mean, they would have to pick guys up to, for school. They would have to take guys home. And it wasn't a deal where guys, we flew guys in, we moved their families in. These guys were part of the community, but financially didn't have a lot of things. So you're talking as a, as a high school coach, you have to provide meals for guys after school. And it's not a requirement, it's just what you want to do because you know this what these young guys need in order for those guys to be successful and, and continue life on the right path. Now, on the flip side of that, we had some guys on my high school team I mean, I never forget. They they come running to practice. Practice starts at three o'clock. They come running in. I mean, just they were in the streets, you know, making money, making a living. They they run right into practice, start practice. We keep rolling. It just and I, and I look back on some of those things uh, when I left high school, when I left East St. Louis, when I got old. It's like, man, that was amazing just to be able to navigate through all of that as a young guy and not flinch in the midst of all of it because it was just a part of who I was. And 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 I appreciate and I applaud that. And I don't try to glorify things that you know took place from a negative standpoint, but it's just it's amazing that we were able to manage and get through that. And so many guys go and have successful lives and college careers. Well, that's why I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while. I just think you have such a unique story. And, and obviously I know it from, from knowing you over the years. After being you know, Lincoln High School, you you get the opportunity to play college basketball. You were you know, pretty highly recruited. You know, you, you chose Purdue and, and played for the legendary Gene Cady. But what led you to Purdue um, in the first place? And, and what were some of the other schools you considered at the time? Well, well, really, for me, it was it was probably Illinois. Uh, but what happened, they got in some trouble, I think, I think it's 88, 89 with, with the Deion Thomas situation where, where he, there was accusations that a phone call and all of that. So when that happened, it kind of changed my recruiting. But for me, that was that was the place I wanted to be. Uh, so when that happened, the, the coaches called and, and just between my high school coach and my mom, they just said, well, we're not sure we're going to be here. We're not sure the outcome of what, you know, the call it had taken place. And so it changed my recruiting. So now I'm sitting there necessarily in scramble mode because I had enough time. And I think at that point, and, and, and by the grace of God and the people that were in my life, meaning high school coach, uh, 
of course my mom my best friend dad who's like a father figure to me uh, people like that helped me make a sound decision because I think oftentimes as intelligent as intelligent as young men and women are at this age you, you can't know at 18 what somebody knows at 38 or 40 years old you know though they're very intelligent but you can't I can't pick a school at 17 18 years old all I know is the uniforms that do they wear these type of sneakers uh, will, I, will I play from day one but other than that I don't know a lot of particulars about it so they helped me make a sound decision and what it came down to at that point it was Purdue and Connecticut for me and I think two tough hard-nosed coaches tough coaches that taught discipline uh, got after their guys and that's what I needed and I chose Purdue and, and under Gene Katie and I'll never forget what coach said uh, in the midst of everything else in the recruiting process what he said he said and my mom remember this if you go to class every day you'll get a degree if you work hard you will play there was never a promise in that conversation if you go to class every day you'll get a degree if you work hard you will play and that was it now other schools promised you know financial means outside of the NCAA realm uh stuff under the table um, housing uh, we, we, we give you this give you that and that was Coach Katie's speech again we, we had we talked a lot now and it's funny because again we didn't have cell phones back then and and it wasn't as if we didn't have a phone at home oftentimes you know because obviously we couldn't afford it so they would have to catch me and it's funny because I, when I see Frank Kendrick a guy that recruited me uh, Bruce Webb when I see those guys it's funny because when they recruited me they'd have to catch me at the school or catch me at the McDonald's where, where we all hung out because we didn't have a phone so, so you know it was, it, was, it was funny when you think about it now and I, again, I wasn't embarrassed about it because that was the majority of guys and people we grew up with. But I think that's what helped me make my decision with uh, Purdue. It's, it's Coach Katie, and I thought his assistant coaches did a sound job of being resilient and consistent in their approach. Well, that makes me laugh because it makes more sense because you didn't have a phone. And I always tell people, you know, in the recruiting process, and you know this from as a, as a coach now, you're you're talking to guys 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. You know, Coach Katie's conversations were the shortest of any coach I got. I mean, you know, there was not a lot of wooing. I mean, you're like, you used to hit it on the head. He was just honest and, and trustworthy. And, you know, my phone calls, I always joked, uh, I was playing PlayStation one time with my brother and, and, you know, if, typically if I got a call, I'd have to get up and leave because it'd be 25 minutes. And he calls, I said, Trent, just hit pause. And, uh, coach Katie said, uh, you know, how's your family? Good. How's your grades? Good. Okay, babe. Well, we want you. And it was three minutes and that was it. And so that's why it makes sense since you didn't have a phone that uh you didn't get a lot of those uh special you know special coach katie calls you know what but that that was great because the, the honesty in which he approached the game and how he taught you you can appreciate it to this day and, and and the stuff that a lot of the things that coach said and did i still use to this day because it, it was sound information and, and it helps me in my life well you mentioned that coaches you look at some of these famous coaches in the country that have coaching trees and you see a lot of guys in their coaching trees that have gone on and, you know, maybe they have one guy that's been successful, but a majority of them fail. I mean, you look at coach Katie's coaching tree and, and virtually every person that's gone on has been, you know, successful. And I think the main reason they teach defense, which is what his emphasis was and playing hard, but they teach character and culture and uh, they don't get consumed with some of the other stuff. And I think that's why, you know, he's had so many coaches going to be successful. I think that's true. And, you know, I think coach had a, 
Coach was considered old school, and oftentimes I, I consider myself old school. And what I mean by that, and, and I, as I learned, old school to me, it means values. Uh, it means respect for people. It means having compassion for young guys. It means being disciplined, doing the right things, being accountable, having integrity, valuing people's life outside of the sport. So that, so if that was old school, then that's who I am to this day. And I just, I just think that the biggest thing with, with coaches success he taught all those things so now if you're a teacher those words I just use you'll teach those in the classroom you'll teach those in the corporate world you'll teach those in the military so those are life lessons you can't lose with those words if you define those words and you live by those words and, and of course I believe in God so I think in the realm of all those things I just talked about and you add that to your ability to coach young men that come from different walks of life because you're in the locker room you got 13 to 16 guys many 13 scholarship guys several walk on guys they come from different areas different states uh, single parent home, two parent home, grandmother raised them, a father, single father raised them. So you have all these things going on in the locker room. So there's a lot of life lessons and you got to be able to push every button in order for that team to be successful, but more importantly, in order for that young man to be successful and not just finish and get a degree, but have a successful life and a successful career. And you really impact in those four years of that guy's life because that can change his world from a positive, positive standpoint or a negative standpoint. Well, at Purdue, you were part of some of Purdue basketball fans' favorite teams. Um, I remember actually, uh, that's back when Purdue's arena had the old pit. And, and as a kid watching you guys play the Fab Five, and what was it like, you know, you guys, the fanfare behind your team, you played along, you know, Glenn, Big Dog Robinson. What were those four years like? And, and what was it like for you guys to almost get to that final four uh, and come up just, just a touch short? It was it was a great run because when you are talking also winning Big Ten championships and, and to play alongside Glenn, who was also my roommate, uh, was the most talented guy I've, I've ever been a part of and been around. And, and I put him and Lafonso Ellis there, but, but Glenn was just a different level uh, in how he approached it. He, he approached it like, I mean, literally when he practiced, he, he focused like it was the last practice he'll ever have. And that's how hard he practiced within the realm of competing. And, and he's one of the few guys I've ever seen at that level and been around competed at that level. Because, and what happens when your best player competes at that level in practice, you have no choice, the other guys, but to raise your level. So now all of a sudden, everybody's playing at that level. And, you know, in, in that game, we lost to Duke and credit Duke. They did a great job. They won the game. Uh, and, I, and I don't know how many know it nowadays. I'm not making any excuses. Glenn wasn't 100% at the time. Had, had a minor back injury, but, you know, he last guy would make an excuse about it. And again, we came up short, but you look at it, he didn't play the level uh, he normally plays at, but give Duke all the credit in the world. But it was a tremendous run for us. Uh, you know, West Lafayette, Purdue changed my life. Uh, I grew up a lot. Uh, the transition coming from East St. Louis to West Lafayette, uh, it, was, it was fun to be around. I met my wife there as a sophomore in college. Uh, we're still together. You know, we met in 92 here in, in uh, 2000. Uh, 2018, we have a tremendous relationship. I have a 21-year-old son, a 17-year-old son, and 11-year-old daughter. So Purdue, uh, I owe a lot. And my son actually is going into his junior year there. So I owe a lot to Purdue. It, it helped me become the man I am today. 
Well, I'll make the excuse for Glenn because he had 40 in the game before, and and that doesn't you know that, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't happen uh, if you don't have the back injury. No question about it. You know, I found two interesting things about you, Zoe, uh, that surprised me. One, you are I think the leader with 137 consecutive games played, which blows my mind from a just being healthy. Um, you know, you look. I, I know you don't have you've got bad knees. Uh, we've talked about that, um, but how you were able to play a 137 consecutive games and then also you end up as the I think percentage three-point leader and correct me if I'm wrong but coach Katie loves to say like when you first got there you weren't really a three-point shooter how did those things happen well I, I think that the, the the real answer the one I would use all the time is God without question but when, when I when I was and I'll kind of give you uh, context and then I'll answer your question. When I was in the ninth grade, I fractured my knee. I had two pins in my knee, um, and all I asked was, will, will I be able to play the game? And that was the most important thing. So going into my freshman year, I had another knee surgery. So when they did the test and X-rays, uh, and I think Denny Miller was was a part of he was a trainer there, uh, was one of the best that ever do it there. He um, they looked at my knees and they said I had the knees of an of an eighty year old person at the time because the arthritis was so bad and it was bone-on-bone college. And this is going into my freshman season. And and, and the biggest thing for me, I remember, uh, not all the words, but just will I be okay to play? And that was the most important thing. Now, outside of that, I had to make it work because me going back to East St. Louis, outside of love and family, there was a, not a lot from a financial standpoint, companies, business, and corporations for me to be a part of. So I had to make it work. And my drive and all of that was really making sure my mom was happy, making sure I'm successful so my mom could be happy, finding a better way for my mom. And it was never really about me. So I couldn't give up from that standpoint. I had to make it work. So that's all that really matters. And so if somebody want to know the blueprint, I there was no blueprint. I had to make it work for my mom. And the basketball part, as far as my shot, I've always tried to be a guy, and my mom raised me to be respectful, listen to adults, listen to authority. It doesn't matter what position they hold, what color they are, they're people, they're adults. So for me, being respectful to authority, so Coach Katie was my coach, Coach Weber, uh, Tom Ryder, who passed away, was a wonderful man. Uh, Frank Kendrick, all those guys were assistant coaches. So my job was to listen and hang on every word that they said because they were the guys that I looked up to. They were the coaches. They were the authorities. So now when it comes to working on my game, when I came to college, I was really a 6'5 post player. Well, guys my size played on the perimeter, so I had to learn how to play on the perimeter. So it wasn't as if I had a bad shot. I just never shot three-pointers in high school. My game was slashing around the rim. I, was, I, I basically played it like I was 16. Everything was around the rim. So when I got to college, I had to improve my perimeter game, my ball handling, my passing, my shooting, all those things. And that took time. And Coach Katie was always patient with me. And, I, and I'll give you a story what really changed for me. When we played at Illinois my freshman year, and I played 45 seconds in the game. And, and, and it gave me a lens of what it really looked like. And I, and I knew I couldn't give up. We played at Illinois, played 45 seconds. And after that game, we walked out to the bus. We drive back home. So, you know, the drive is probably two, two hours maybe. And my mom had at that time, and I'm not sure if they still make them, but she had Hallmark cards. And they were, she gave one to Coach Katie and gave him a hug and a kiss and gave one to, you know, Frank, Bruce, Tom, and gave all those guys a hug and a kiss. And then when it came to me, she gave me a hug and she gave me a kiss. And all she said was, are you reading your Bible? 
And I said, yeah. And, I, and again, I, I don't think I was reading as much as I should have been, but I think I said yes. So, so, and after that, that was it. There was no more coach. Why isn't he playing? We should play more. That was it. So that then, and I knew she did it before, but the trust level she had in coach Kate and the staff, that everything that they said, that's all that matters to me. As long as her son wasn't being harmed physically in any way, shape or form. Other than that coach, you got them. So for me, I couldn't turn back and I had to make it work from that standpoint. And that's all it was for me, just getting in the gym, working on my shot every day. And I didn't play in that game. And I went back to coach. I said, coach, how can I get on this floor to play? And what he said, he had been saying it all along. I just started listening at that point. Well, I actually have another theory. I think you became a great shooter uh, once you lost your kid and play haircut from high school. And uh, I thought that was weighing you down and then allowed you to be the, the shooter that, that we all know that you are. <laughs> Man, when I, I found that uh, article uh, for the listeners, I found an article of Zoe back in the day with the uh, flat top uh, kid and play cut. And uh, man, I'll never forget it. it uh, I'm not sure I can unsee that, that hairdo. And you, you, were, you thought you were fresh then at that time. Hey, hey Pete, that was, that was fresh in the time. You see it's coming back out now. It's it, past every, three or four years it's back out. Yeah, everything's coming back. These little fanny packs and all the other stuff that's coming back. So now I do want to share with the listeners a, a quick story about your competitive spirit. Um, I was a young eighth grader going into my eighth grade year and I was being recruited by Purdue and I was good, but I mean, you know, I had no business playing with the, with the Purdue basketball team at that point. And we came to an open gym one morning and, uh, before I think the football game and, uh, Frank Kendrick, says, uh, go out there. Those guys want you to play with them. And I'm like, these guys do not want me to play <laughs> with them. Trust me. And he's like, no, no, they want you to play. So I go out there and, uh, you know, I, I'm on Conzo's on the other team. I'm, they have me guard Link Darner. And I think they felt like that was the only guy that, you know, <laughs> respectable enough to guard. And so the game goes back and forth and, uh, comes down to the very end and it's tie game and game point, And I'm somehow get switched off on you. Now, you're 6'6", six, six. I'm an 8th grader, I'm terrified, so I'm back up, I'm like 3 feet off of you. So you rise up at the top of the key, pull up a shot, and you air bank it. You don't hit anything. <laughs> and I think we're going the other way, and the next thing I hear is, foul, foul, you got me! You know, and, he's, and, and of course I'm an 8th grader, and scared to death, so of course I'm not saying anything, but Chad Austin was on my team, and all I know is for the next 5 minutes there were arguments whether that was a foul or not, Ultimately, you won the argument and your team ended up making the game point. But I'm wondering how you felt about picking on uh, eighth grade Austin at that point in your, in your college career. Hey, P, what, what that did, that got you ready when you went back to high school, it made you a great player. I mean, think about it. You, you figure if guys are doing that and cheating like that in college, I got to get ready. <laughs> no question. I went back to Northwestern and it was like, yeah, they were, didn't understand the fouls I was calling. But. <laughs> Well, well, after your basketball, you know, your, your college career ended, you were drafted uh, in the NBA. Uh, you played uh, a couple of seasons there, a couple of seasons overseas. But one of the, I think, most unbelievable, intriguing parts uh, of your, your life story is what occurred when you were playing in Italy. Uh, you, were, you were leading your team in scoring and then you had to come home. And uh, I'll just kind of leave it there. I, I'd like you to share, you know, what took place and, and you know, kind of kind of your journey from that point um, and overcoming the, that, the, the disease that, that you were diagnosed with. Well, what happened, I was it was August. So 
around August 1st or 2nd, I went to Avellino, Italy, uh, playing professional basketball. And and Roberta, she was due to have our first child, Joshua, on August, uh, I think it might have been somewhere between the 10th and the 20th. So I went August 1st. I was over at the team we were training. Uh, Josh was born August 15th. So I had a chance to go home and see him. We came back to Italy and playing. And then we get into it. I think it was November. Well, before November, I'd say like late October, the owner of the team called me into his office and just said, and what he was trying to say is like, you're playing, you're playing great basketball in the first half. And this late October, but, but you're struggling in the second half. And again, I, you know, I just felt like I was exhausted. Oh, okay, whatever, I'll, I'll get it in gear, different country, you know, whatever, I, I couldn't understand it. So we get to November uh, and we're practicing. And I just know on the baseline, we were sprinting to half court uh, or full court. And I sprinted to half court and I passed out. Um, and they took me back in the training room <laughs> And the trainer who couldn't speak any English, and it was about five or six other guys that were Italian, some played in the States and they could speak fluent English. But the, the, the trainer, he was trying to say, but he used gestures with his hand. He was like saying, you used to be big when you came over, but now you're small. Because he put me on a scale. So I was, so when I went over, I was probably 215, which I normally played at. Uh, and I was down to 185 at that time. So you're talking between August when I went over uh, to November, 185. So they did a lot of tests and x-rays in Italy and then the owner of the team I met with he and his wife that night who she she was from the United States and she could speak fluent English and what she was saying you need to get back to the States immediately uh, and I had a flight the next morning to Rome and Roberta and Joshua were at the time because they came over maybe in September so they were there so we all flew back from Rome to Indianapolis or New York Indianapolis and we got back to Indianapolis uh, we got in in the morning I'd say you know between one and two in the morning and I had Joshua in my hand and he Joshua was four months at the time and we got we got through the front door and I just kind of you know almost not necessarily passed out but I was exhausted so I dropped Josh on the couch and I, and I, and I laid on the other couch and then Roberta she was kind of getting the bags and I just said we need to get to the hospital tonight I'm, I'm I didn't know what it was because I was so exhausted. So we, we went to the Indianapolis hospital because that's where we were living. And uh, so this this is probably a span of between like 2 to maybe 3.30 in the morning, somewhere around over the years, my, my time uh, changes. But we we met with doctor, tests, x-rays, blood work and all of that. And, and I'll never forget, I can't remember the doctor's name, but I'll never forget his face. And he said... Uh, I don't know if you're going to die, but this is life-threatening. Um, and, and that was probably the toughest thing or the hardest thing I've ever heard in my life. Even, you know, growing up in East St. Louis, the things I've witnessed, things I've been a part of, uh, mistakes I've made. Uh, this was probably the only thing I felt like I had no control over in my life, period. Even the knee surgery, you can overcome that. So, And when he said it, Roberta was, was holding Joshua. She was kind of sitting in the chair, and I just glanced at it quickly and looked away. Uh, because of course she heard it and I just felt like at, at that point I had to have a level of strength and not to say I'm some tough guy that, that men don't cry it wasn't that but it's just I need to have a level of strength because here, here I am 20 she's 23 I'm 25 and I just had a son right, well no, it's, no she was 24 I was 26 just had a son so now I'm sitting there thinking wow um, 
And from that point on, the doc came in, the oncology doctor just came in and they, they wanted to find out if it was malignant or whatever. And they found out it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a form of cancer. And uh, I had to do chemotherapy for about four and a half months, which is tough, tough, tough thing to go through. Uh, and, and, and the medicines are so advanced nowadays, but every everything I had to do, uh, I had to do it through IVs. Uh, and it was uh, it was tough. It was powerful. It was exhausting. Took a lot out of me. I never never said or never thought I'd give up, but I was to a point where you know whatever happens happens because it was it was tough. It really was. And, and for me, I just prayed to God, uh, just allow me to see Joshua turn eighteen. And and here we are, August fifteenth. Joshua will be twenty one. Uh, so and that was, that was pretty much it for me. And, and I think the hardest part in all of that, and I don't know why and I still can't understand why not that I really try to seek answers it was hard for me to tell my mom what happened and I, I never forget Roberta she had to say have you, had you, you called your mom yet and I would put a call off and here I am sick but I would always put the call off to call her and I don't I don't think Roberta ever called I think she gave me the opportunity to make the call but I don't know why that was so hard for me to do. It's, it's almost as if I was letting her down. And, and I still can't understand why to this day. So here we are. Uh, my last treatment was April the 20th of 1998. So it's 20 years to 20 plus years. Did that experience, and and obviously um, you, you, you know, th- th- there's I'm sure more in depth to that story. How's it shaped? How did it shape your perspective going forward, and and maybe you know your approach to life? Did, did anything change after that? I don't, I don't, I don't think anything changed. I, I think for me, in, in the realm of sport, because I always thought I was a decent person uh, away from the game. I, I had a competitive spirit as a as a player. I had a competitive spirit as a, an assistant coach, as a coach, because we compete, and that's what we do. It's not who I am. And I feel like I always had compassion for people and I always thought I was respectful uh, and try to pe- treat people right. And whenever I made mistakes in areas, I, I prayed about it and asked for forgiveness and continue to move forward. But I, but I don't know if it did anything, but in the, in the, in the sport realm, I think what it did, it, it gave me an appreciation for, for wins and, and an understanding for losses that is not the end of the world when you lose a game because this will all be over at some point. Because I think when you land in that bed and, and, and it could go either way, the last thing I would be concerned with, man, we lost a shot at the buzzer. Oh, man, if this guy wouldn't have turned the ball over this game, that's the last thing on my mind. The things I was thinking about at that time is, man, God, I, we, we just had Josh. It's four months. Uh, uh, Roberta and I, I want to be able to see grandkids. Uh, Roberta and I want to travel the world. So those are the things. I, I, it wasn't even about a particular game. It wasn't even about my career at Purdue as a basketball player. You know, I had great times. It wasn't about any of that. It was just in the last days. Uh, and then you start thinking about you know, things that you would have changed. You would have did more. Uh, saying I love you to my mom every day as opposed to once every other day. That's what it was about for me. And, it, and now... As you fast forward, when I coach a game, and I always tell our players, guys, it's just a game. Put everything you have into it. Win or lose, there will be a tomorrow. Learn from this because there's lessons in everything we do. You lose a game, what'd you learn from? You win a game, what'd you learn from? So there's lessons in learning. So the job is to focus every day like it might be your last day, but in, but try to enjoy it. Not to have pressure and fear, but to enjoy that day. 
Well, a powerful story. I mean, I for sure, uh, I remember hearing that the first time you told it to me and, and got choked up, you know, hearing about it. Um, you know, I want to want to talk about your coaching career and I want to go backwards a little bit. So for, for anybody that knows coaching, uh, Coach Martin, um, he is one of the best, and I think maybe one of the top five in the country, motivational coaches uh, to play for. Uh, I had an opportunity to play for him. Um, you know, I used to laugh because Coach Katie would take the first team and huddle them up and, and draw up plays, and you would take the second team, and you'd have us so hyped and ready to run through a wall <laughs> that we would shut down all that stuff, and, and then he'd be mad at the first team. But I know from your players at Tennessee, Missouri State, Cal, if you talk to anybody that's listening, they know, like, when you talk to the team, guys are ready to go run through a wall. That said, uh, there was a time maybe when those speeches were, uh, you know, probably needed a little honing in on. And so I, I want to share a caller uh, that called in special for this for this interview. The year before Zoe went to Purdue as an assistant coach, and, and Zoe's first year as assistant was my first year as a freshman. He was the JV coach at Westside High School. And uh, my former teammate, Andrew Ford, was on the varsity at the time. And, well, he wanted to share this. So I got a couple, uh, I got a couple of great stories to tell. I was, uh, I was on the varsity team at Westside when uh, Coach Martin was coaching the JV team. And uh, a couple of my friends and I, we used to sneak down in the locker room both at halftime and before the game because the either motivational speeches or just pump-up speeches were, were, were pure gold. And so I got a, I got a couple of the, uh, I got a couple of these early gems that, that I'd like to share. So the, uh, the first one was the, the GB team was, was playing a, uh, a, a team and, and they had a kid who was just lighting it up in the first half. And one of our better offensive players, who wasn't a great defense, Defensive player was guarding this kid who had 20 points in the first half, and so Zoe came in at at halftime and 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 was lighting this kid up, telling him, "You got to learn how to play defense, man. You know, no free lunches. You got to earn your money." Uh, and he said, I don't, "I don't care how embarrassed we are. I don't care what happened this game. You got to learn to play defense. You got to learn to play in the second half." So he left the kid on him, and uh, let's just say, you know, it didn't work out so hot. That kid went from hitting 20 in the first half, ended up with 38, and uh, and they lost by two. That was one of only uh, two losses on the year for the JV team, but uh, pretty pretty interesting uh, motivational tactic there. And then uh, the second one I wanted to share. Uh, they were they were playing. Uh, I don't even remember who they were playing, but it was it was one of the pregame speeches. And uh, uh, Coach Martin gets up in front of them and 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 starts saying, uh, "He's like, gentlemen, last night I was I was sitting on the couch and I was I was watching the Discovery Channel, and uh, there was this bear, and there was a family that the bear wandered upon, and the family." took in the bear and they nurtured the bear and and they helped the bear grow but eventually that bear got got too big for the cage and so they had to let it go and had to release it out into the wild and then he paused and he looked at the JV team and of course no one has any idea what he's talking about or like what this means so he just pauses looks at him and says I have no idea well, I just told you that story. We got to go out there. We got to do this, boys. Let's go. And uh, <laughs> that was the end. Everybody just kind of laughed. They huddled up and they went out. So I played that for you. Uh, this was pre the, the epic the motivational speeches that we know now. Uh, give, me, give me your thoughts on uh, that year and some of those uh, interesting speeches you were given. Oh, that, that, that is funny right there, man. Dog. 
You know, those are, <laughs> <laughs> those are good times. That's your four to six. But no, you know, Coach, it's part of it, and it's always different levels. So for them, as young guys, having me around, making it entertaining. So what I try to do with those guys, I, first thing I try to take away the fact that I played at Purdue and they're just trying to be a coach because I was trying to learn. I was, I wanted to be that more than they probably wanted to be that because I had to learn and get better. So it was a great uh, springboard for me from go from there to Purdue. So, and they were fun to be around, very entertaining, very intelligent young guys, good guys. And I always tried to make it fun for them, but in the midst of it, the trade-off was they had to play hard because ultimately their job had to be ready to, for the varsity team at some point. So let's have some fun with it. Let's, let's play hard. Let's not make it personal, but you got to play hard every time. And I thought they did that for our program. And the kid that Andrew's talking about, Seth, he's probably a better scorer. He could really score the ball. And again, the job was for him not to be ready for us on the JV, even though I thought we had a great year, it's for him to be ready for that varsity team. And he was a wonderful young man, but he could score it. And my job was to really try to help him become a better defender. And not that he couldn't, he just, there was no desire to him. And he get all great guys and all funny stories. Andrew, he, that guy there, he tries to keep all the stories, man. But that's that's funny there. Well, I knew if I, uh, I, I dialed him, I was asking if he had some free time <laughs> last night. But, uh, well, you know, your first year coaching was, again, back with Coach Katie. T- talk about what the difference, you know, you played for him. Now you're coaching with him. You know, what was, what was it being on the other side of the table? It was, uh, you know, it's a good question. It was easy from the standpoint uh, of me, me being familiar with the area. So that part was easy. The recruiting part was hard because you obviously have to work. And if you've never done that before, you, you assume it's easy, but it's really hard. And building relationships, trying to find the guys that fit Purdue basketball, not guys that I, I might like or the other system like, the guys that fit what Purdue's trying to do and what Coach Katie's built this program on. Those type of guys, guys have a passion for being a part of Purdue, not just the campus, the university, the culture, everything he has to offer, being a part of that and taking pride in that. So you had to learn that part. Uh, the, I think the, the hard part for me, I think, and I would imagine this for any coaches getting into a new I didn't take for granted the fact that coach was my college coach there was always respect but I wanted to listen and learn so I'll never forget we had a meeting one time and, and coach he joked about it he said so you quiet you've never been this quiet <laughs> and, and, and because I just wanted to listen and learn I think oftentimes when you see new and young guys and they talk all the time it's hard to understand and learn when you're doing all the talking so I just wanted to listen and take notes and I didn't want to take for granted the fact that I played for a coach because it's different when you've played the game and then all of a sudden now all of a sudden you become a coach you got to be able to teach it and that's not an easy thing to do and I know most players they don't want to hear what you did as a player okay that sounds good but teach me that if it was that good because I don't want to hear what you did all the time so I try to stay away from that part and just allow my actions and my work ethic to be my gauge but but for coach I said it was easy because he was a legend uh, he understood he made my job easy but 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 in return it made my job hard because I took for granted how good he was so now all of a sudden you remove him so now you learn the things that well you were able to have success just because of coach's name and what he did and, and I think that part really made me work. So it took me about three years to really understand and learn. You know, some guys, they sit there and say they did it in six months, one year. It took me about three years to really get a grasp of what it meant to be a good college coach and how hard you had to work and the time you had to put into it. Well, you mentioned recruiting and eventually Coach Katie retired. Um, coach Painter came in. 
you have been incredible. You were incredibly instrumental in signing one of the best classes ever at Purdue and Robbie Hummel, Juwan Johnson, and Etwan Moore, all pros. You also signed, helped sign Carl Landry, another pro. You had several pros at Tennessee. I know you had Yvonne Rabb and Jalen Brown at Cal. And obviously, Michael Porter Jr. just was drafted this past year. Clearly, you're an incredible recruiter. What makes you such a great recruiter? What do you focus on that allows you to attract such top talent at, at virtually everywhere you've been? Well, well, thank you for that, awesome. But I, I, I would, I think I would, I would safely say and respectfully say, I think I'm, a, I'm okay at, at recruiting, and this is what I mean by that part, because because of my family, my relationship, my wife, my children. I'm not a coach as a head coach. I did it as an assistant coach, and I did it early in my coaching career, but I'm not a head coach just talking to recruits all night long. Those days for me are long gone. I mean, I'll text and I'll call key guys, and I have a pattern in which I do things, but as an assistant coach, it's all night. As a, my, my, my first, all my years at Missouri State, all my years at Tennessee, Tennessee, you're on the phone all night, recruiting, calling, texting, whatever it is. California work that I learned, I, st- I took a step back and I kind of figured out uh, something has to give here because it's exhausting. You're taking time. You, the, the closer you get to trying to reach whatever goal it is you're trying to be as a coach, you're getting further away from your family because of the time you give to the game. And you got to give it the time. So what I learned as a balance, and, and, and I'm forever grateful for being out of California, Berkeley, because he taught me the balance of the life part, not just the sport, but the life to, to be able to function in that world. Now, as far as landing those type of prospects, I think the biggest key is just having relationships and, and to be transparent. And I, I think for me, guys, you can read about it. You can hear about me. I have nothing to hide. You know where I come from. It's not that I'm flamboyant about where I come from. And that's, and that's some glamorous story talking about cancer. It's hard for me to talk about all those things. But that's who I am. And I think for most players, when you have the, the ability to be uh, trustworthy, to be honest, and, and to be respectful to other people, I think most young guys let their guard down. Okay, I, I'll listen to Coach because he seems to be on my level from the standpoint of having compassion for what I'm going through as a young guy. And I, and I think I've seen and been through a lot of things in my life that I can relate to a lot of walks of life and I'm not perfect I make mistakes I say to our players all the time I apologize I messed up right here how can we change this because it's just life and and I don't think I'll ever be a great coach when it's all said and done my ultimate goal is to try to be a great father and a great husband and for me that's a moving target and that's the one I'm trying to bullet point and win that battle as a coach it just it forever changes because you got different players I mean a little luck here now you see teams with top recruiting classes every year and they don't max out and win a lot of championships because I don't think it's about that. I think it's about building relationships and, and 20 to 40 years down the road having relationships like, like the both of us have a genuine relationship where it's not about we talk in sports all day long. We have a relationship. How's your family doing? How's my family? Let's keep moving. And and I think for me, that's what it's about. So I think when you can have that, and when it's all said and done, people can question, say this and about your ability to coach and do all the, all that. But what type of man was it? What type of person was it? Because this is my occupation, but it's not who I am. And I just think in recruiting, you got to have good relationships. You got to be honest, and and you're gonna lose a lot when you do things the right way. But you win in the end. Well, at each stop along the way, Missouri State, Tennessee, Cal, and even Missouri, all programs that had had previous success from a basketball standpoint, and for one reason or another, had had fallen on hard times, either from a winning and losing standpoint or maybe some turmoil, 
at each of those places, you go in there and you turn the culture around, you get the program going in the right direction. You get, you know, when the kids, uh, stabilized because, you know, good leadership, when you go into those places and you make those turnarounds, what's the primary focus in getting your culture established and getting people going in the right direction? I think the first thing is, is the discipline piece. Um, and that, that's always been for me, but for my staff. And, 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 and I just simply say discipline is recognizing what has to be done, doing it as well as you can do it and doing it that way all the time. And that's a commitment to doing it that way. So, and then you, you, you can look at words, the accountability. So for me, it starts with me, accountability to do my job, to be on time, to, to work with character and integrity, to have humility in doing my job, to, to value my job because Mizzou doesn't owe me anything. So I'm grateful for the job, but to value the opportunity to be a part of this university and to value these young lives and helping them understand what they're trying to do and to make sure those young guys understand, let me be your lens for 20 years down the road to see what you can't see to help you get to that point and then the appreciation of having the opportunity to do the job so I, I think when you're talking all those things and I talk that to my staff as I build a staff this is what I'm looking for and I talk that same talk to our players to understand this is what this is about so when you're building it it goes back to the discipline of doing your job and what happens is you get to a point where whenever I've been to programs now and it really happened more so at Missouri State and Tennessee because it was new to me as a head coach you get to a point where you have struggles and they can either go north or south now you have to stand strong right there and your faith and your disciplines of what you do every day, the focus level of what you preach and what you teach, and you got to keep moving forward. Because anytime you build a program, there'll be tough times, but you have to be able to navigate through them and understand what it is that you do best. Because I've seen a lot of guys, they fall because they, this didn't work, let's try this. This didn't work, let's try this. Well, I have a blueprint of 80% of what I do, I do it wherever I'm at. Well, you go to Cal, you know, and I just got back from a vacation this, this spring where we got to go to San Francisco for a couple of days. You're at a university that's great education. You're getting the program in the right direction. You're getting big time players, beautiful city. But then Missouri comes calling and it's a chance to come home. It's a chance to really kind of, I feel like, uh, anchor the boat, um, you know, and, and be part of, I think, a special university, but a, a place that's hungry to be successful. What were the emotions when you got that call? And then what were the emotions like when you accept the position and know now you're back in your home state? state where it all started well it was it was, um, it was uh, let me see it wasn't it wasn't tough it, it was hard for my family because again Missouri State Tennessee Cal Berkeley now here and I'm sitting there thinking, uh, man, I, 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 of course, the first person I talked to is, is Roberta. And, and if you've been out there, you just say you came from vacation. It's beautiful out there. And, we, and it was great. The weather's great. Uh, but for me, the, the passion to be at Mizzou, uh, to be a basketball coach at Mizzou, who I, who I watched it from afar for so many years, but also to be a part of the growth of the campus when you're talking about diversity, inclusion, uh, and growing from that standpoint, I want to really be a part of all that so I just felt like it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up and it, it was hard to leave Cal Berkeley because it's, it's a place I think I grew the most as a coach on and off the court and just life lessons and the things that you learn out there uh, 
but I, I feel like it was the best move for me. And, um, you know, I pray to God if it's the last one, it's the last one. But I just, I, but I'm planning here right now. What's it like being back? You know, you were at the SEC at Tennessee. Now you're back in, in Missouri in the SEC. Compare, you know, is there a difference between Big Ten, Pac-12? I mean, what's the difference in, in being in that conference versus some of those other ones? Well, I think they're all good conferences. I, I think, you know, everybody sell them differently. Uh, you can look at the numbers, how many championships, this league, that league, all that. Um, I think the SEC, in my opinion, the, the athleticism, um, the coaching, the, the, the guys that you're going up against have the, 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 the potential to be NBA players. There's, there's so many of them on each roster. So it's not, it's not a night of, okay, we can relax tonight just because the talent level is so high. Um, you know, so, so it's one of those leagues that's nonstop. You know, oftentimes you can, you can be in a league where, okay, we, we know we can get a couple here. We can count through. You can book these in. This is not one of those leagues now. Was it like that the first time I was in the league? I think so, but, but not now. Now it's, it's a fight every night because, again, the talent level, the coaching in the league, the exposure of the league, when you're talking the combination of the SEC network and ESPN together, that's a tough combination, a hard one to beat. So Pac-12, it was, I think Pac-12 is more of a free-flowing, not as a physical league. And, I, and maybe that's one of the things when the Pac-12 get in tournament play, the, the physical standpoint, uh, where, where they're not accustomed to officiating that way. Uh, on a consistent basis and so, you know when you get a tournament setting I mean guys are playing you got officials from all leagues even though it's supposed to be all in unison but you got guys officiating different leagues and some allow you to play more physical uh, Big Ten's always been a physical uh, grind out type league and I, and I don't think the Big Ten gets the level of exposure that it does as far as getting up and down because they, they do a good job with that but they have a reputation of you know kind of grinding it out but they do a great job of getting up and down so you, I mentioned earlier the fact that you've coached you know so many pros now. When you know you've got a kid that's that's got pro capabilities, um, and it's you know it's easy to see. Is there a different approach with how you coach that kid versus another kid, or is there a different uh, kind of long term you know plan? Or in this case, sometimes now with one and done's a shorter term plan. I think you. I, I think first you approach all young men the same, meaning that's their age. But now every kid is different. Every guy is different. So different backgrounds, uh, the way they were brought up. Uh, some you can drive harder. Some you have to have a little more compassion. And I don't think that matters. Their talent level. I've been around very talented guys that are sensitive in a lot of areas. And I've been around guys that aren't as talented and they're sensitive in areas. So, so I don't think that part matters. I think it's just the individual. Uh, because at the end of the day, 18 is 18. I, I don't care what your talent level says. That's your age. It's what you've been through. It's what you want to learn. So my job is to try to push the right buttons to help him, whether it's one year, whether he's on campus, eight months to help him get where he's trying to go. And there's still a lot more to be learned when you're talking 18 going to 19 and, and all of a sudden you're a top NBA draft prospect. So hopefully I gave him enough when he was here and hopefully he got it when he was growing up. But, but not, I, don't, I don't approach it any differently if, if a guy's a, a, a highly talented guy. Um, just the drive is different or the practice is still hard but but I might say certain things to different guys to push certain buttons because you have to get to know them first and, and, and that's one of the things I learned like when you guys the sister code we're just going we're going because that was the world now there's just a little more compassion to get to know the young man first and, and and they'll ask more of the question why are we doing this and, and not necessarily from a negative standpoint but they want to know why and how long and those sorts of things and that's right that's fine so 
patient level for me has grown uh, because of the times. From a strategic standpoint, Zoe, or, or just how you approach your first year as head coach to now, uh, what, what's changed? Uh, what, what's been the biggest change from, from that first year to now? Uh, more, more of an offensive approach. I, I used to be, I, and, and again, I, I still think you need to be great defensive to win championships, but that was a thing back years. If you if you were good defensively, you're already in the ballpark to win it. But nowadays, you have to be good defensively and you have to be good offensively. You have to be able to do both, uh, and you can be great at one or the other. But you got to be able to do both. I don't think you can win 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 at the highest level without one without the other. So I think my approach is offensive. Like for example, last year, Mizzou the school record for three pointers made was 306. We made 300 last season, the most in school history. And and my my approach from that point in the game and we had big guys and I've always been a guy that loves to throw the ball inside but we had big guys and, and they can shoot the three and that's where the game is going so my job as a coach is to adjust with the game because it's, it's a trade-off we won't lose the core values and what we do and how we go about it but there has to be a trade-off for these young men to reach their individual goal especially guys that have the potential to play at the NBA level my job is to help put them in position to do that I'll get you out here on this question, Zoe, and I appreciate you taking the time with us. But one of the things I also admire about you, and I've seen it firsthand, is, uh, you know, your faith um, and how you've embraced that and and how you live that out. How has it shaped you and, and, you know, how has it shaped the way you coach and, and just, you know, what your role is as a father and husband? Uh, I, th- I think it's, it's everything for me, uh, and and just understanding that that we all make mistakes, and uh, I'm not a perfect. Uh, I try to be the best father and husband I, I can be. Learn from it, uh, but I'm 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 always okay uh, with with. With, with saying I made a mistake, I'm sorry, I apologize, and, and that's that's more so to my kids and my players. Uh, you know, and I think there's just life and and just being trustworthy and telling the truth. And I think if you do that and and you really lean and trust, uh, like Proverbs three, five, and six, trust in the Lord with all your might and lean not on your own understanding. I think that is the hardest part for man to lean not on your own understanding. So if you can't see it and you can't touch it, then it's faith. And what is it really? I can't see it. I can't touch it. Was trusting. It comes back to trusting and, and, and being a good person. And that's what I try to live by. And, and I enjoy it because what it does more than anything, it gives me a peace of mind and it gives me balance. Well, Zoe, I, you know, I want to say I appreciate our, our friendship. And, uh, you know, honestly, I mean, I, I played for Coach Katie and, and a lot of credit to him. But a lot of the stuff that I do in my program, my approach to things, you know, what we do here is uh, from you being a mentor. And I'm excited about the future of Missouri basketball. I, I think, uh, you know, some uh, Sweet 16 and Final Fours are in the near future and can't wait to, to see when that happens. So, Zoe, thanks again for joining us. All right, Dupree, thanks for having me. Special thanks to Coach Martin for taking time out to join the podcast this week. Truly an honor for me to be able to interview somebody I consider a mentor and friend. But what it really did for me was put me back in my playing days, thinking back to when Coach Martin was teaching us, motivating us. But thinking about as a player, how hard we wanted to play for him and how much we didn't want to let him down. And I can tell you firsthand, that's why he's one of the best motivators and teachers in college basketball. If you talk to his players, I guarantee you they say the same thing. And that's why his teams play so hard. The other thing I think is special about Coach Martin is what you see on TV, what you see in interviews is what you get. For me and my program, a lot of the stuff that we do 
are things that I learned from him uh, while playing at Purdue or talking to him over the years on the defensive side of the ball. He's never been too big, no matter what level he's been at, to take my calls and give me, whether it be coaching advice or life advice. And that's something I've always appreciated. I'm excited about Missouri basketball. I know the Missouri fan base is thrilled to have Zoe there. I expect to see some sweet 16s and final fours in the coming years. And I know I'll be tuned in to check out the Tigers uh, on a weekly basis. Once again, sign up for the podcast on iTunes. Subscribe. Tell a friend. Let them know about it. Uh, I definitely think you'll learn something when you listen to some of these podcasts and hear from some of these coaches uh, and what they do on a daily basis. Rate us. Give us feedback. And again, guys, once again, thanks for joining us. And everybody have a great week. Thank you.